The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. We just sang some wonderful words for our world. Songs from so many years ago, the Jews praying for the one who would come to set thy people free. O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sing that means God with us, ransom, captive Israel that mourns. And even as we hear those words in our day so many years later, it's hard not to think that there are captives in our world today. There are captives even in Israel today. We've seen on the news about ransom and exchange there's, there's a need in our world for Emmanuel, for God with us. Many in that land mourned, but some rejoice as hostages have been set free into Egypt. Those people of Israel were in cruel captivity for weeks. Many of them women, children, young people, little ones, and others. There's still much to pray about and much injustice in our world, but it's also important to think about the kind of government that we've been reading about, the kind of justice that we heard about associated with Messiah, and understand that the government of Gaza and other parts of the world are founded on principles contrary to those that we read about in Scripture and in God's law that we're going to be studying. And even as I've been studying this next section of God's law and how it shows us his care for life, and his heart. We've seen this already in Exodus, but we're going to see this more in the section ahead of us. This shows us God's, what he reveals to his people, shows his character, shows his heart, shows what he desires for his people that he have created. And so we're in the book of Exodus, if you're joining us here, and you can join us there, where 3,500 years ago, God brought the captive people of Israel out across the border of Egypt and Old Pharaoh was brutally killing Jews, even babies, as we've seen. He, he's gonna, he has faced God's justice already in this story, as people who do that do. And as Israel fled, there were these terrorists called Amalekites who were attacking women and children, is how they're described. But God delivered Israel from all their enemies. God brought them to a place of safety. God brought them to a place where he's going to establish a society and government that is built on his principles that honor life. But just imagine, even having that thought in our mind, in our context here, imagine the terror of being in captivity. It's hard for us even to imagine what that would be like to be a captive. But then imagine what it would be like to be set free. Try to imagine that if you can. In Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses says, Don't be afraid. And we looked at that part last time. There's understandable fears that they would have still. But in Exodus 20, as we get to the end of the chapter, God is going to offer something that's more than an exchange. What he's going to offer is more than just a temporary ceasefire to the hostilities that they had faced There is a way that there can be true peace. There's a way that there can be true blessing in worship and in society. But it has to do with sacrifice. And here we have the one true God speaking his way of an offering for peace. And his way that men can actually have God with us. Look at Exodus 20, verse 22 The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered... I will come to you and bless you. Here he's looking beyond just their experience here, speaking to his people about in the future, wherever, in any place, he's going to cause his name to be remembered. He's going to come and he's going to bless his people 
If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And we'll stop there today for our study. But just look down at verse 12 of chapter 21. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And so this is a section that's about God's rules for justice and also about God's rules for mercy. The altar was the place of mercy. There were, there were places where they could flee for mercy that we'll see in, in future weeks. But also he describes an occasion of, of willful taking of human life where they were to be taken from that place of mercy. But Exodus 20, we know, is the Ten Commandments. Some have also called this section the first bill of rights. So the right to life is here. The right to property is here. The right of workers is here. But also Exodus 20 starts with God's declaration of independence from slavery, from captivity. He says, I have brought you out from Pharaoh, out of that house of bondage. This is what James would call the law of liberty. There's a, there's a liberty that comes with this law. There's a freedom and blessing when you understand it and apply it rightly. But we understand also in this section there's a sacrificial system that Jesus ended by his sacrifice. And yet there's still societal wisdom in this section in the weeks ahead. So there's a sacrificial system that Jesus Fulfilled and completed by his sacrifice, but there's also societal wisdom in these chapters that will follow. Chapter 21, verse 1 starts with rules of law for the state of Israel, but they also influence the United States. We saw before Exodus 18 actually influenced the American judicial system, where there were different levels and increasing judges put over them, and so even having local and state and federal judges, that system, some of those as they put that in place was based on the principles of Exodus chapter 18. And there's a lot in Judeo-Christian ethics that we can learn from in chapters 21 through 23. This law that God spoke to Moses speaks to our world still. There's going to be some things that we don't normally think about that's good for us to, to wrestle with. There's some things that are unique to ancient society for sure, but there's also abiding equity and there's abiding morality that we need to consider here as well. It was interesting when the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke to the U.S. Congress, he ended his speech to them in, in the House chamber there with these words. He pointed to the back of the building and he said, facing me right up there in the gallery, overlooking all of us, in this house chamber is the image of Moses. It's the one image that's right in the middle and kind of like looking down on everything. Moses, he says, led our people from slavery to the gates of the promised land. And before the people of Israel entered the land of Israel, Moses gave us a message that has steeled our resolve for thousands of years. And it was the words that he gave, do not fear, do not be in dread of them. Be strong and resolute and just a few weeks ago, the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, also, in his first address to that house, did the same thing. He, he pointed to that image of Moses in the back during his speech. And, and he knows something about U.S. laws and biblical laws, a legislator and litigator for Alliance Defending Freedom, former lawyer for them, a group that defends legal rights of of believers. He, he taught at Liberty University on the Constitution in his evangelical school of government. And as he became Speaker of the House of Representatives in October, he also pointed to Moses in the back of the room there. We need to, we need to pray for our government leaders. And we need to pray that they will actually look up, not just to God's law, but to God's gospel. There's actually several portraits 
around that chamber there, but this is the one right in front and center. And if you were to go across D.C. to the Supreme Court building that you've all seen, there's also right in the middle entering the, the Supreme Court. I think I've, I can't advance the slide here, but there's also a, a, a display right in the middle of that building of, of Moses. And he's also, there's a, a sculpture over the east portico of the of the building as well. So on the left there is that the top of the Supreme Court building. There's another one of him holding the Ten Commandments, some of the words in Hebrew as well on the outside. And on the inside, there's, there's a, a painting as well of Moses. And this, as the oak doors you enter the court chamber have these tablets with, with numerals one through ten on them. Also above the uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice seat, All of these things. Here's what a Harvard school professor, Alan Dershowitz, has said. The Ten Commandments are clearly a precursor to all Western law, including American law. And a scholar named Mark Rooker has traced how this has actually influenced other societies as well. We could look at England, but Charlemagne of France and Alfred the Great of England both established legal systems based on biblical laws that included the Ten Commandments. So the laws of Alfred, this is 890 A.D., began with a recitation of the Ten Commandments along with excerpts from other portions of the Mosaic law. And and what I want us to do and think about is as we get to some of the later sections of the law of Moses is to think about how do these apply to us as modern Christians. And and here's the outline I want us to consider here today. I want us to think of the aspects of law after the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, and then the application of this next section to us. Because we need to have some care as we do this, and and some well-meaning people can get very confused or off course with some of these things. Decalogue is the Greek word for the ten words in Exodus 20, 1 through 17. And in Hebrew scripture, Torah is, is their word for all of the law. So in the chapters that follow, but all the way through Deuteronomy. And, and really, there, this is a big section of our Bible that we need to understand rightly. And maybe some of you are tempted and you, you do your Bible reading, everything is going great in Genesis, everything is going great in Exodus, and then you start getting into some, some weird things and you don't know what to do with it. So you just kind of want to maybe skip ahead to some other books. We need to, this is important. These What's laid down here, we need to understand rightly. And there's 613 commands in Jewish teaching, and the Israelites would see that Torah as a unified whole. They wouldn't parse it up. But we can also see that after the Decalogue, which is the first 10, which received great and and unique importance, the other 603 have different aspects. Some of them sound like the those first 10, but others sound very different. And and, and we need to also just kind of like step back and understand where we are in the flow of, of this book. 19 chapters, Exodus 1 through 19, God saves. He's delivering his people out of Egypt, out of that society, out of that government, out of the oppression that they were under. So Exodus 1 through 19, God saves. And then you could take the second half of the book, chapters 20 through 40, God speaks. There's a lot of, he does some speaking before that, but he's, he's saving his people. And then for the rest of this book, we have primarily God speaking, and then Moses is relaying it to his people. But God saves, God speaks. We're in this section where God speaks. It starts with the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, and then what follows, chapters 21 through 23, build on, but are different than, in some ways, the first ten. And we'll see that as we go here. But one of those obvious ones is Exodus 23 through 17. God thundered these out. There was smoke and fire and they observed all of this. They all heard the first ten audibly. And then God writes these ten with his own finger. That's a figure of speech. But God personally, rather than Moses, writes these ten on tablets of stone as the story unfolds. These are indelibly etched as ethics, and they're put in the Ark of the Covenant for, for permanent safe keeping, these tablets of stone. But then chapter 20 ends with some words that weren't permanent, even in their lifetime, even in their experience. There were some temporary things like about altars 
at this point that would look different than altars even later in the lifetime of these people. So look at chapter 20, verse 24, where it commands an altar of earth. So the altar that he wants them to do now is, is a, a mound of, of dirt. And if there's going to be rocks, he says a little bit later, they need to not be cut. There's not any craftsmanship of this. But that wouldn't be true later in this same book when he gives them a, a law now about what altars need to look like when we have the, the tabernacle set up. And so this, this command actually is going to become obsolete just in a few chapters, which is different than the Ten Commandments and different than God's moral law that we can see in other ways, which is absolute. It's not obsolete. You're never to commit adultery. You're never to covet, never to steal, never to murder, never to lie. But there were some laws, even in this same chapter, that were a temporary need, like verse 26. There's a need because of how, even at this point, they wore their robes, that that there was this law given. But then he's going to give them a law about linen trousers that they would wear that would take care of this need. So later on, they would be able to worship and there would be steps, but there was a way to make sure everything was done modestly and decently. And so there's some laws that were temporary, not just temporary until the New Testament, but were temporary even in the Old Testament. There were some that were updated. When Israel becomes a monarchy, Samuel gives them a new law or new revisions and updates for what it's going to look like now under a monarchy versus how it was in the wilderness. And the rest of this section through chapter 23, God didn't put on stone. He didn't put it in the ark. He didn't thunder it out to all. But that doesn't mean it wasn't important to them or there's not things for us to learn. But there would be changes. We've got to understand this. There would be changes in how and what God instructed, even within the Old Testament. And it's important for us to understand this because sometimes people will object or, or accuse us of just picking and choosing certain things from the Old Testament about certain issues and then ignoring other ones. But we need to understand this whole principle and what makes things binding upon us or not. Look at chapter 20, verse 19. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So this is where it changes now. Verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God is. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel. And then from here on, what God is speaking in this God speaks section, he's saying to Moses, who then is to relay it to the people. So this is a change. It's now mediated. And Exodus 24 says, Moses wrote down the rest of the words that God gave him, and then he read them to them, and it was called the Book of the Covenant. And what covenant is this the book of? It's the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses. And it's then that God gave Moses also the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his own finger, and then gives them directly to all. And then Moses also was to write this covenant book that is in a different form. So Exodus 21 through 23 is the book of the covenant, the old covenant code under their theocratic government, their God-ruled government. But also just some more obvious things. When we're in Exodus 20, we remember a phrase, you shall not, right? You shall not. You shall not. It's absolute in the grammar. It's emphatic. It is unconditional. No exceptions. And it's in the second person singular, you. But, but look down at chapter 21, verse 3. If he, that's now a third person and it's conditional sort of law, comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. This is describing a circumstance in their society. Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with a fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, He who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So even in that, there's a lot of if, then, when in these rules. But also they're showing God's care for for people. And we'll see those more as we get into them. But this chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments kind of summarizing the law. And then chapter 21 through 23 has been called case law. 
if, then, and it gives examples, and it's not exhaustive examples, but it gives you some scenarios so that you know how to work out those principles. What do those laws look like in practice as we care for people? Maybe you can think of the Constitution, and then think of Supreme Court rulings that apply it to different situations. The downside of that analogy is we have imperfect judges and justices, but these are inspired and perfect rulings by God based on his law. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Your Bible might say regulations or ordinances. Think of America. We have a declaration of independence, right? We have the Bill of Rights, but we also have local ordinances of law that apply to us here in our state, here in our county. And a lot of what we're going to read in these sections will will have some localized ordinance dynamics that were unique to their land and time and society and experience. So look at chapter 22, verse 21. Chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. That's very clearly written to these people who had been living, who had physically lived in Egypt in their lifetime, which is not our experience. But that doesn't mean there's not things for us to learn from this. Verse 26. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? Again, you've, you've probably never taken someone's cloak in a pledge. But we're not just thinking, oh, this is irrelevant to me. I don't know what that's... We need to understand what is, what is God communicating in this. This is case law, but it's also the law shows us God's care and character. Look at chapter 23, verse 25. Chapter 23, verse 25. You shall serve the Lord your God... So is that something all believers are to do? Is that, is that obliga- obligatory for us? You shall serve the Lord your God. Yeah, we don't set that aside. But, but listen, think about this carefully. He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. We need to be careful because this is spoken to a particular people at a particular time and not just take this as if, if we serve the Lord, there's going to be no sickness among us. That would be a mis application and we we need to study these things because that's not a guarantee for christians today even though some people will use old testament verses like that as guarantees for healing and prosperity we need to understand god's word rightly and his covenant promises that had to do with a covenant land and that were unique to then exodus 21 through 23 also has civil penalties that we don't enact like sorceresses dying or rebel kids being stoned. There's some societal laws and there's some sacrificial laws that we'll start with today as a part of a system that we as Christians are not under. None of us brought animals today to sacrifice. At least I don't think you did, and that's, that's good. But we are morally obligated to serve God. Like it says here, we are morally obligated not to oppress. We are not to wrong sojourners. We are to care for the poor. And here's how some of the old confessions explained it. Israel's ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the Old Testament. But to Israel also as a body politic, this is how the Westminster language, he gave Sundry judicial laws, sometimes these are called civil laws, which also expired with the state of Israel, of Old Testament Israel, not obliging any other now except for, here's the key phrase, the general equity thereof that may be required. And then the verses they put in parentheses are Exodus 21 and Exodus 22. So they saw that in these chapters that we're going to look at in next, the weeks ahead here, that there are principles of general equity, even though the body politic judicial laws 
are not imposed on us like they were to Israel. And certainly the ceremonial laws, the New Testament says those are done away with. Just to give you a verse on the ceremonies, Ephesians 2.15, to us who are outsiders of the commonwealth of Israel, Paul says, as Jesus died, he was abolishing in his, or on the cross, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So the commandments expressed in ordinances, in that context, that's actually the word used in, in some versions of Exodus 21. Think of commandments like circumcision and some of the ceremonial ordinances that were unique to the Jews and the judicial law. We're not under as Christians, but also we are not above the spirit of the law. Even as the letter of the law, Christ has updated And Christ labored to bring out the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law as the Jews wrongly limited it. So think about rules and restrictions like diet. That's the context of Ephesians 2. Things that divided Jew and Gentile, they were abolished at the cross. But there still is moral law, moral principles for us. As our forefather says, there's general equity or principles that God requires in these chapters of Exodus. So Let's walk back through our text now. And I, I needed to kind of set that up because it's, this is a, a different sort of section than where we've been. Look at chapter 20, verse 23. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Certainly this isn't something we just set aside because we've now moved on to the next section. No, this is... This is clearly actually even repeating what God said in the Ten Commandments. This is a moral principle. We're not to make gods. And these are some examples, but it doesn't mean you can make a god out of copper, obviously. This is just, it's it's giving you now examples, so you now have something to build upon. But then look at verse 24. So here's the very next verse. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on. So this is ceremonial or sacrificial law for the Old Testament priesthood that he's about to establish. And then chapter 21, verse 1, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And he's going to give them a lot of judicial ordinances that are called general, there's some general equity in there. But these are, one scholar says, judgments, guiding cases, procedures now, civil, religious, and political categories. So there's a transition now from the Ten Commandments and the, the moral law to ceremonial and civil rules. But here's the question. How does this next section apply to us as New Covenant Christians? How does it apply to us, I think, is the right way to ask that question as New Covenant Christians, or does it? And so this takes us from the aspects of the law after the Decalogue to the application of this for us. There's different ways people have applied this. Some of the old school dispensationalists, the Schofield Reference Bible, basically saw the law as irrelevant, saw it actually as opposed to grace. And so I was reading the the study Bible notes on Exodus actually go through the book, and then when you get to chapter 19 through 25, it just skips over them altogether and makes no application of the law or even the Ten Commandments. And there's, there's many who never teach the law, but, but also in, in some circles, and some fundamentalist circles, they may not teach the law of the Old Testament, but they, they teach law. They're just, in some cases, adding their own law. You, there's got to be some law, and so there's often extra-biblical principles. Some of the circles I was around growing up, I, I, I never heard sermons on God's law until it was Phil Johnson down at Grace that I heard teaching on God's law, and it really impacted me, and there was... It was, it was powerful, but I realized I'd, I'd never really heard expounding of God's law. And I, I'm thankful for some of my TMS friends, some of the local pastors in this community. Several of them have taught through this, the book of Exodus, even in the last three years. And it's been a blessing even to listen to some of my friends through this as well and learning. And, and honestly, these chapters, 21 through 40, are new territory for many. And honestly, they are a challenge to study. One of my friends actually gave up in this section, and he's going to come back to it, I think, later. But um, there's errors on all sides of applying the Old Testament rightly. You've got the Roman 
Catholic church that tries to take everything here and bring it in. So you've got the, the priesthood is still active. You've got the sacrifices still active, but now it's in the mass. But they believe that's continuing all these things. Or Seventh-day Adventists reinstate the dietary laws and the Seventh-day Sabbath. And then there's others who don't think the law applies at all based on a misunderstanding of Paul saying that we're not under Law, And then there's others who want to make us under the law, even in its civil sense, even in the, the penalties, even some of the, the theonomy and Christian reconstructionists and, and some who call themselves Christian nationalists as well want to get to that in the future. One of my pastor friends who taught through this said what was most helpful for him is not asking as you come to a principle or a law which of these apply. That more helpful is to ask how does this apply to me, not which of these apply, because there's there's no there's no coded system that tells you this applies and this doesn't. But we do have statements from Scripture that all Scripture is to be taught, and so how do we teach this? How do we apply this? And I, I think Calvin's threefold application from his Institutes helps us. He, he he says first of all the law, and we talked about this before. The law shows the sinner his need of Christ. The law is like a mirror; it shows our sin. It's also like a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Paul talks about this a lot in the New Testament. We see our need of Christ, and sometimes we see pictures of Christ in the very law, and they, they show us what Christ would ultimately do. But then there's also a second purpose of the law where it helps restrain sin. It helps restrain evil. There's things that we don't know or right or wrong or that it holds back the consequences of law. Even on, in a secular sense, law restrains Evil, But then thirdly, God's law, which is different than secular law, shows us what pleases God. It shows us what love for God and love for neighbor looks like. Because it's one thing to say we just need the law of love, which is sometimes how the New Testament summarizes. It's the law of love, yes. But, but what does that love for God look like? We don't just get to define what love for God looks like or love for neighbor. We need to look to God's principles in the Old and New Testament but then even with that framework, how do I teach chapter 21's laws on slavery and second marriages? And I've got till next week to figure that out, but that's, that's what's coming. Jonathan Edwards said this, There is perhaps no part of theology attended with so much intricacy and wherein orthodox theologians... Orthodoxy is not meaning like Roman Orthodox, but those who are sound theologians do so much differ as stating the precise agreement and the difference between the dispensations of Moses and Christ. And so if America's greatest theologian says, it's hard, it's hard, it's going to be hard for me, but how to apply Moses as Christ's followers is something we need to faithfully study together, to be faithful to God's whole counsel. But it is a big, complicated subject, law and gospel. And I think what will help us is to start with the greatest theologian today, and that's Jesus. He said, the least in his kingdom is the one who would annul the least of his commandments. So the last thing I want to do is just make this irrelevant, to communicate to people that even the least of his commandments is just irrelevant. But he says, whoever would teach them will be great in the kingdom. And that still begs the question, well, how do we teach some of these things that look different for us? I don't want to teach others to relax. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, they're even a jot or a tittle. Even what Jesus fulfills is still to be taught. And in Matthew 5, after he said that, he quoted Exodus 20, and he showed us how not to relax its application. So murder and adultery which is going to be part of chapter 21 and 22. He, he actually starts with those Decalogue commands, and then he applies them to deeper to heart principles. And Jesus doesn't just quote from chapter 20. He quotes from chapter 21 in Matthew 5, just a few verses later. And then he also clarifies its application for Christians. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. That's right out of Exodus 21. But I say to you, and that's Exodus 21, 24, they had heard it taught differently than he's now about to teach it. And he's going to apply it to individual Christians who are being persecuted. He's going to apply it differently to them than that principle for law enforcement or that principle for war and government and 
all of that. We're not to, as individuals, avenge like Old Testament Israel. We're to love enemies, even as governments and authorities are called to fight them and to protect and to serve. And so we need to teach Exodus 21, but in teaching it, we apply it rightly in light of what Christ taught, not just in light of what we think. We need to apply it in light of Christ, in light of what he taught. So I think that's a key place to start. And there is a general equity principle in eye for an eye that is good to consider as believers and especially that judges can apply that. We'll look at that in a a couple more messages. But the New Testament says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching. But we need to apply it like Jesus and the New Testament. The Spirit inspired all Scripture. So we need to look to the Spirit's help to understand the spirit of the law that he gave, what that teaches us about him, and not just the letter and the way it was applied back then. So we're going to teach through the law in the weeks ahead, trying to follow our Lord's example. I'm planning to try to major on the major principles. We'll we'll take maybe some bigger sections um, and Jesus did that. He tried to major on the major principles. He, he rebuked those law experts who were just trying to strain out every gnat, as the scribes did, which I don't want to do. But he also said there are some commands that are least or lesser than others. So when someone asked him, what are the, the greater or greatest commandments, he didn't rebuke him and say, no, they're all on the same level. He says, love the Lord your God, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. He affirmed that's the greatest, that's the first, the foremost, and that's the summary of all the law. That's what the law is about. If you don't understand a particular law, think about how it fits in with that. And Jesus affirmed there's no greater law. And love, he says, is more than all the burnt offerings, which is the term right here in Exodus in our passage And he also spoke of different aspects, or here's how he says it, the weightier matters of the law, which are mercy, justice, and faithfulness. He said that in contrast to how they were tithing of every little thing. He says the weightier matters of the law are justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's Matthew 23, 23. So how do we apply the law? Maybe one way to say it is WDJD. What did Jesus do? I don't know if we can make a bracelet with that, but it's what did Jesus say to do with the How did Jesus, what did he do with the law? How did he apply it is how we should apply it. We're not to annul the least of the commandments or teach others to make them just irrelevant, something we just ignore. He also said don't neglect the weightier matters of the law, so mercy, justice, and faithfulness. We, we want to balance what's most weighty and significant to him in the principles of justice. And I think faithfulness is something, even in those old ceremonies that pictured him and pointed to him that he fulfilled, they can be a great encouragement to us to see his faithfulness. There's pictures and promises of gospel grace that he faithfully fulfilled, every dotting every T, uh, dotting every I, crossing every T. And on the weightier principle in the law of mercy, he rebuked the Jewish law teachers who didn't apply their Old Testament and this key verse from God that says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God ultimately didn't need sacrifices, certainly didn't want animals. Those were temporarily put in place until what he desired actually would come, which is the mercy, the real dealing with sin that would come with Emmanuel, with the Christ that we celebrate this time of year. So let's look at Exodus 20 sacrifices, but not neglect these weightier matters of mercy, justice, faithfulness. Exodus 20, verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven So don't miss, God is mercifully speaking to his people, what he desired. There's no other nation that saw this. And God was faithful to his promise. He promised he was going to bring them to this mountain where they would worship him. So verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. That should sound familiar, right? First two commandments. But this is a warning they need to heed. And even the mention of gold may anticipate what's going to happen shortly hereafter. They're going to make a, what kind of calf? Golden calf. So you say, why is God repeating himself? We need 
repetition because we are tempted in certain ways. And so how does that apply to us? You know, we may not trust statues we make, but we can trust silver and the dollars that we make. We can make that our hope and our trust. We can make gods of other things that glitter that are not gold. So there's a general principle that applies to our consumerism, our materialism, really anything that we would seek to put in that number one position. We've talked about that before. Don't make gods or elevate anything other than God physically or mentally. So this is a moral obligation for all time. But then there's, in the next verses, a ceremonial ordinance for Old Testament times. Verse 24, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And so this is a temporary practice, but there is an abiding principle. There, there's, there's more than one, but God does desire purity and simplicity in, in worship. It still applies to us that God wants to approach uh, him the way he wants, and he doesn't need impressive stone structures. Church worship is not about a building. It's not about our tools of, of ingenuity it can be a mound of earth. It can, it can happen on the dirt outside in Africa or in Ecuador, which I've experienced true worship of God's people. It's not about the sights and the sounds. It's not about the style of music. It's about the Savior. It's about what, what he says, not about what we feel. It's about his sacrifice. In Italy, I saw some incredible cathedrals and stone steps so beautifully hewn that people would go up to worship. But to God, it's those who are bowing down to honor his name. That's what he wants, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And the end of verse 24 has this wonderful statement anticipating, I think, even us today. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. God is faithful to this. He mercifully comes to bless his people in every place of worship. And he causes his name to be remembered. And he comes to bless those who do. And so even as we sing, oh, come, Emmanuel, we know that he does come in a special way to bless us in worship. There's even a special blessing as we gather around his table. But the altar, the language here of the altar, is is where those weightier matters of mercy and justice in the law actually came together. Because God in his justice requires death for sin in his law. But he provides mercy. And he provides it at the altar. We deserve to die for breaking the Ten Commandments. Many of these Ten Commandments, there's actually examples of the death penalty being enacted. But right here, there's an offer of life. There's a way of life. With the law, there is grace. Life for life is God's standard for justice. Mercy, though, allows a substitute to pay that price, to die in the place of another And verse 24 says, On their altar they would sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings, sheep and oxen. And I think these Jews had to be thinking about a story they all heard growing up where all those terms were mentioned, where Father Abraham was told to go and offer up his son Isaac on the altar as a burnt offering. And Isaac knew about burnt offerings on an altar. And there were sheep Involved, So as he's going up there, he sees the wood, and he's like, Father, uh, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Because he doesn't know what God had told his father to do, and Abraham said to him, God, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering on the altar, my son. And if you know that story, as he is about to die there, he's on the altar, 
He's about to be offered up as that offering. God stays the execution. God makes an exchange, and he makes an exchange through a sheep over here. It's an adult ram on the, that is in the bushes that he directs him to, and then he comes, and he, instead of his son, who is he, takes him loose, and then now he puts this this sheep on the altar, and then he slays it and burns and consumes it. Instead, you can imagine Isaac seeing all this. You can imagine any father, any son, any family hearing this story and how gripping it would be to see that this, this substitute that the Lord did provide has died in instead of me. And, and just weeks earlier, these Jews here had remembered a time where there was going to be death coming to all the sons, all their firstborn sons that they loved unless there was a sheep, unless there was a blemish-free lamb that would be slain and would be sacrificed and would be burnt and would be cooked and would be consumed in their place in the Passover and these are the same people that, in the end of verse 19, fear that they're going to die as they hear God speak his holy law. We're going to die, they say. They understand they're sinners. This is a holy God. The wages of sin is death. But there is a free gift of God that is offered in his own son's sacrifice. Romans says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is why Christ came. The Christ who was born among sheep and oxen. And as he was born, there were shepherds keeping watch over sheep in fields near Bethlehem. These were sheep largely being raised to be sacrifices for this very system that was there at that time. And they're called to now come by those angels and to see this baby Jesus. They come to see the Lamb of God. That was provided. God didn't provide a lamb back in Genesis 22. He provided a ram. But now he does provide the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for all those who believe. And there he is. And isn't it interesting that shepherds are called to see this? Not the rabbis, the experts in the law. It's these shepherds. And the earth, in a sense, was his altar. To bring peace on earth and and mercy to to reconcile and to satisfy God's justice. Jesus kept all of the law, every single little thing, the least of the commandments for us. And then in his death, he said, it is what? Finished. So he's the end of the law and it sacrifices for all who believe, Romans 10 verse 4. The Lord did provide the lamb for an offering for his sons, for his daughters, who would believe and trust in him. And so those laws, weightier matters of mercy and justice are actually served at the same time in faithfulness to all of God's promises, all of the pictures, all of the hopes and fears of all the years. They come together in Christ. And what God did is better than any, anything you'll see on the news this next week about some swap of, of sinful men to set like guilty people for innocent hostages. There's nothing going to be like that. What we have is Jesus, the innocent one who surrendered his own life in exchange for us guilty sinners. So it's an amazing thing to think about. And he can make true peace. When it talks about peace offerings here, that's the peace that he Makes. And so we don't need to obey that command because Jesus actually fulfilled that command. We need to apply this principle. Here's how that looks in Jesus' own words. Matthew 5, 23, that same chapter. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So this is Jesus Early in his ministry, giving an application now to the, to the Jews who were still at that time offering animals at altars until three years later when he would be the final sacrifice. But what he's saying here, this is a, a principle that applies beyond that time. If you recall a brother or sister that you have hurt, that you have not pursued peace with, done what you can, go, Jesus says, seek to be reconciled and If you have something in your heart against another, forgive in your heart as you pray, before you partake. Ask the Lord, confess your need, confess your struggle to him. 
as we come to the Lord's table, this is, this is important, but what's even more important to our Lord is that we are striving to honor him, striving to honor relationships, striving to reconcile, doing what we can before we come. Right worship involves pursuing living rightly with God and others. And what that looks like is asking and granting forgiveness. Sometimes there's things that are just, you need to deal with it in your heart before the Lord, and that's what you need to do in this time. Ask him forgiveness before you would partake. Sometimes it's hard to forgive. There's some things that that we really struggle with. Hebrews 13, or somewhere in Hebrews it says, we still have an altar that there's an altar in Christ where we can, we can bring those things to him, if in a sense lay them on that, the, the altar that is in Christ and, and ask God to, to burn that away through the sacrifice of his son. And, and here's, think of your infinite sins. Think of all the sins that you have committed and continue to commit against Christ and think about him on the cross as he says, Father, forgive them. That's what we need to look to. That's what I need to look to to help us. And Romans 12 says, As much as is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Sometimes that looks like, like it was even for me this week, making sure I've, I've done what I can to pursue things or, or even letting a brother or sister know, hey, let's, let's get together next week. There's some things I want to share with you and, and talk with you. It can be... Th- Things like that, where as much as it depends on you, you've done that. But there's sometimes things in our heart, we've got to guard against bitterness. And so this is an important time as we come to the table to ask God's help to to burn all that away. Because Jesus said right before all that in Matthew 5, to be angry at a brother, to call him a fool. And I think even in our heart makes us guilty. But he said this, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. So think about this. Who do you need to be merciful with? Who, who do you need to think more mercifully about, speak more mercifully to? And then it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Who do you need to pursue peace with or be a peacemaker with? And then where we all transgress God's law of love, we all trespass against his law, pray, as he says a few verses later, Forgive us our trespasses as we, what? Forgive those who trespass against us. If we want forgiveness, we need to be forgiving at the same time. Our closing song is a prayer to the Lamb of God to cleanse us as we come in this time. And so let me, let me pray and I'll ask the musicians to, to come. And as we bow our heads, I... Encourage us all to think of our sins against the Savior who sacrificed himself on a cross so that we could have peace. And so we want to pray for help. Our Lord, we think of that Passover meal where you you offered, this is my body which is for you. You said this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Help us to do this in remembrance of you, knowing your promise that you said wherever your name is remembered, you will come and bless us. So we're asking for that special presence, that special blessing, that fulfillment of that promise that as we remember you and we remember that you do not remember your sins against us when we confess them, Lord, help us to apply that forgiving mercy and peacemaking And we pray that you would come and bless us in this place as your name is remembered. And we pray all these things in the name of Emmanuel. Amen.